is Top Floor episode 129. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 129. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Jason Brooks is a lifelong restaurant person after more than two decades in positions ranging from sous chef to corporate vice president of operations. Jason has compiled all of his wisdom and lessons learned into Every Leader Needs Followers, his book about transforming restaurant managers into hospitality leaders. Today, Jason and I are going to talk about how much to share with employees and how dynamic restaurant menus should be. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Kayla. And Kayla says, I see TikToks about secret menus at chain restaurants all the time, but I am too scared to order them. Do restaurants like it when you order off of a secret menu or is it annoying? Oh my gosh, I want to know the answer to this, Jason. What do you think? Secret menu, yay or nay? And you know, I would have to say that the average restaurant person doesn't know when a secret menu is being applied. There's lots of times whenever we order food and we have certain allergies, we have things that we like, we have things that we don't like that that we want to add and take off. So whenever we do that, I think most people within our within our industry only focus on getting the changes right. I don't think that they truly connect. Ah, this is one of those secret menu things that I saw on TikTok. Now, if someone calls it by its name, maybe the server does realize it. If it becomes to be a trending ask, maybe people start to pick up on it. But for the most part, I think most people in the industry only want to make sure that whatever a person asks for, that they just get it right. So should Kayla be scared to ask or should she just Absolutely go for it? Absolutely not. I think <laughs> you should go for it. I think you should make the tweaks until your heart is content. Unless you're asking for 20 different... You should cook at home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But no, go for it. Do okay. It. You have spent your entire working life in the restaurant business, getting your start at age 15 at a mom and pop seafood restaurant. What are one or two of your favorite restaurant jobs over that time? It's been a lot of roles, but there are two that do stand out. First one, back in 1998, Hilltop House Restaurant, Fayetteville, North Carolina. I was a sous chef. At this location, this was my first time actually being able to get into the creative side of the culinary arts. Now, the Hilltop House is 112-year-old, historic home, downtown Fayetteville, themed rooms. Off the bar is a fresh herb garden, 
fresh rosemary, sage, parsley, basil, mint, chives. And I had the halfway free reign of creating my own features. That was one of the best jobs that I had. Second one, I would have to say uh, Moe's Southwest Grill. Moe's Southwest Grill was my first foray into the franchisee-franchisor relationship. Of course, I've worked for mom and pops plenty. I've worked back a house, front of house on the management side. But for Moe's Southwest Grill, getting to understand franchising within the hospitality industry and that relationship between those two parties and how to make that grow, that really uh, exploded my mind and widened it on the different possibilities that were in the industry. Oh, that's really interesting. And you're right. There's like a whole world behind that door that people might not know. Like, you know, the point of a franchise is they give you a playbook. So if you decide not to follow the playbook, you're basically throwing your money in the garbage. <laughs> yes, it is a big investment and it is a investment on both parts. You know, the franchisor has to make sure that the relationship that the support given to the franchisee is clear and concise enough for that person to thrive, for that person to grow. It isn't to sign one agreement or three and then keep it there. Whenever most people want to franchise their brand or franchise their product, they want it to grow to more. So you have to focus on how can I give the right support also for the franchisee side. I mean, that is a different world too. So just knowing both sides, that really opened up that world. And and that goes for many industries. Absolutely. So speaking of franchise restaurants, I know that a lot of your career has been spent working in either the franchise or corporate restaurant environments. What do you think that independent restaurants can learn from more corporate style and maybe also vice versa? Well, I've had the pleasure of working on both sides. So I'd say that what uh, independents can learn from the corporate side is systems and processes. Systems and processes, I think that corporate businesses get down really good, even whenever things get tough, even whenever it it is a truly slim um, pickings, whether with uh, staffing or sales. They they know how to stick to the process, whether it be at line checks, food safety, uh, how to forecast sales, how to do a truck order. Corporate does a really good job at building those tools and maintaining those tools. Now, what independent does very well, they embed themselves into the community. They do it better than any other corporate brand can. They will partner up with a local high school. They will um, know how to speak up in City Hall with topics that comes to the area. They will know how to really celebrate a regular whenever they come in versus just send some cheesy email for a free cheesecake. They actually <laughs> know you. You have your favorite chair. You might be a part of the mug club, um, all of that stuff. They do really well at embedding themselves within that community. That is so insightful. And I think you're your observations apply equally to 
corporate versus independent hotels that the corporate side very or branded side very very good at systems independence very good at being embedded in a community that's such a nice turn of phrase too i'm going to remember that um okay so after more than 20 years you are transitioning out of day-to-day operations and into more of a speaking and consulting role what drew you to doing that you know, in the hospitality industry, we get introduced to public speaking at a very early age and we don't even realize it, whether it be in, whether it be it during alley rallies, shift rallies, during, um, conference calls, the, you are, you are always finding yourself having to present yourself to a group of people. Um, and about 25 years ago, I invested my own time into this group called Toastmasters. Most of your listeners may have heard of Toastmasters. They are local and regional. And I noticed that when I started to um, uh, uh, work myself through the ranks of Toastmasters, it opened up more doors for me, for my roles and my promotions. Um, here in the last two years, I found this group called the the Speaker Lab. The Speaker Lab is a group through Grant Baldwin, and they teach you how to how to um, focus on a speak frame model. But but I found that when I learned a lot about the public speaking side, and and it is still something that I've always wanted to do, um, it just opens the door for me to be able to learn more from 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 people that I get around versus just within my four walls and it gives me the the opportunity to spread my wealth as well uh from knowledge from experience versus just with my direct team I get to work with different teams or on stage and uh speaking with owners speaking with experts and getting to learn from them as well you have a book coming out soon called Every Leader Needs Followers. How would you describe the book to our listeners? I think that the book is one, it's it's a very different style of leadership book. You know, some or most books are memoirs. It, it goes into a deep character profile about the person from when they were younger, all of that good stuff. That's not how this is written. It's actually written to be a very tactile, actionable process. I wrote the book and it's geared towards managers that want to build themselves into better leaders. And it's written to be a short read. It's 10 keys to transform service managers to hospitality leaders or restaurant managers to hospitality leaders. And those 10 keys are written in three sections. The first section is the main course. Pun intended. This is a <laughs> it is a short read, but it is the main course of the content. The second section of every key is called the takeaway. The takeaway is a three to five paragraph read that you can use as a reference. Um, if you already read that chapter and you just want to come back and get just just the guts. Or if you just don't have that much time and you just want to get just the high level, you go straight to the takeaway. The last section is called the angle. The angle is actually quotes from industry executives that I've had the very fortunate 
opportunity to work side by side with or finding quotes online that make sense for that topic. So I love that the book is different in the sense that it's not a memoir. It is actionable. I also like that it helps managers to gain back time and you don't have to read it from front to back. You can go to just that key, just that chapter, read about that content, skip around. You can do it the way that you want to. I love the way that the book is structured. And I think it's such a testament to you knowing your audience well, because, you know, restaurant managers aren't sitting around at a desk like looking for stuff to do. They're running around, <laughs> like chickens with their heads cut yes. off. And that yes. takeaway section in particular really keys into the specifics that they need to know. The quotes are really interesting too and very sort of illustrative of the concept. So I think you did an excellent job of setting up the structure, especially with keeping your audience in mind for sure. One of the concepts that you cover in the book is something called the owner-like orientation in which you encourage leaders to share the big picture of the business with new employees. I have worked with so many hotels where that information is a secret, where the general manager doesn't want to share the financials, the costs of doing business, the goals that the owner has. So it leaves the team in the dark and they are making business decisions without like any parameters or without having a clue. So it just seems like yeses and nos are on the whim of the GM versus based on some sort of you know, goal or strategy. Mm-hmm. Why is it important? <laughs> Clearly, I feel strongly about this, right? Why is it important <laughs> that you clue your employees in from the very beginning? Okay, let, let's be honest. Every year, every business, if if you look outside your window, even at your competitors, every year, they create a business plan. That business plan can have three, four, five, six items on it. And they make this business plan, they frame it, they put it on thick paper, they put it on their wall, and they're like, yes, we are going to hit it these days. And then 11 and a half months later, there is nothing that's being hit. (laughs) Half the time, half the time is that we don't put the the human elements of the of the customer facing team into and onto the same page of that business plan. We don't break down where they make that happen or where they can lead us off that course of success. That is one of the main reasons why that when we make business plans, we have to share it and we have to break it down to bite-sized pieces by department and by role of what each person can do in order to make that happen. Now, there's typically three reasons why managers don't want to share data. First reason. First reason is typically because they think that they don't want to overburden their team member with too much information. My team members, they are are already stressed out. I don't want to give them all this information. I want them to focus on just what they're doing. But let's be honest, those that work for us actually do want to learn about business, whether they're going to go on to be a teacher or a rocket scientist or something else. The things within the hospitality industry, especially through a business plan and a P&L, help them to become that better thing down the road. That's the first reason. Second reason, some owners, some managers 
don't understand the data themselves. I think they that's don't understand. so often it. I'm serious. <laughs> they, yes, yes. They just don't know how does X and Y make Z. And since they they don't know, they are scared to share. And yep. they are scared to let the cat out the bag that I really don't understand this myself. <laughs> now, now, the third reason why managers don't want to share, and this is the worst one, the third reason is because they think that there's a power in keeping information. They want to hoard it to themselves and they feel that it can be used as ammo down the road. But that is usually the three reasons why we don't share. But going back to the beginning, we have to share and not only share, we have to break it down to what it means within that role, within not just a one-year time frame, not even a quarter time frame, in a seven-day time frame, what can that individual do to help meet that goal? You know, when you said the thing about sort of hoarding power or keeping secrets, there there is a deep-rooted insecurity underneath that. It's mm-hmm. related to your second point of feeling like you don't understand. It's like, these people aren't going to follow me unless I have something that they can't access themselves. And if they know all of the information, then why am I here? It's then not, why do they need me? Exactly. Yep. They yep. need to read your book and then they will have a reason for <laughs> these people to follow. This. Absolutely. I agree a thousand percent. Okay, good. One <laughs> of the most controversial topics in mm-hmm. food right now mm-hmm. is dynamic menu pricing, mm-hmm. which is the idea that restaurant offerings become more or less expensive in keeping with demand trends. So in other words, like your lunch costs more if it's a busier day or a busier time period. This is a long-time practice in airlines and hotels. And it's, I think, pretty commonly accepted and people understand it. But there's just something about the idea of applying it to restaurants to me that makes my skin crawl. That doesn't mean I'm right. I'm willing to be wrong because (laughs) I think it's the right thing to do in airlines and hotels. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I think that, for one, the restaurant industry is usually the last to the table with many things. There are so many things. I mean, think about back in the day when it came to using a credit card in a restaurant, it was thought that's fake money. We can't take that. How do we (laughs) know that there's real money on that piece of plastic? Um, So there's, there's so many times that it is brought to the table last that we don't know how to do it well. Second, I think that there may be some miscommunication as to when it comes to dynamic pricing and restaurants. From my understanding, dynamic pricing isn't applied to dine-in customers. It is only applied to online orders and third-party orders. Hmm. And, and, and when they're looking at it within that mindset, it is because the online and third-party orders does cause some disruption to the dine-in customers, especially during peak periods, not during all periods, but during peak periods. So it it is similar to a to a plane ticket or to a hotel room. Um, but when you look at dynamic pricing, it's actually being applied right now, and we don't even know it when it comes like to a target. Or to a Walmart. There are times that it is, you know, jacked up some and then turned back down some. Of course, they have to change the price that's on the shelf. 
But again, this isn't applied to the dine-in customer. It's only for online and for third party. And the price swing would typically be anywhere between five and 15 cents. So the average customer that is ordering online, they wouldn't even see like, oh, it went from $7 to $23 for the <laughs> exact same item 15 minutes ago. You know, no, it's somewhere between five to 15 cents and then only apply to online and third-party orders. Interesting. I think one of the things that bugs me about conversations around dynamic menu pricing is the the attitude or mindset that practitioners bring to the table, as it were, of this like, we need to be getting more money out of these people instead of we need to offer customers a variety of options. And if they want to come at the busiest, peak, most high demand time, then they know that that's what this costs. But if they can't afford that, let's give them some options at off-peak or low-demand times that are more in keeping with their budget. I just feel like the way it gets talked about is so anti-customer. And we'll get into this in a minute. But the way that restaurants... I feel like there's some customer service things that maybe need to be solved before we start squeezing every customer for every red cent. Absolutely, there are definitely, but we'll wait to get to that though. Yes, I do agree. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference. Taking place March 19th through 21st at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis, Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. For more information, visit www.hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with some specific, practical, really tangible tips that they can try either in their businesses or their lives. So Jason, something I've noticed since restaurants have reopened since the pandemic is a a lack of awareness of the difference between being on stage and Mm -hmm. backstage. And what I'm referring to are things like employees like finishing their conversation before they acknowledge a guest or asking you to wait, like they're doing their side work and they're like, I'll be with you when I'm done polishing these glasses or maybe not, not even looking at you until they're finished polishing the glasses. It drives me insane. It's so counter to everything I was ever taught in restaurants and hotels. But I also have to wonder if my standards are out of whack at this point. <laughs> have you noticed this? Like, do I need to adjust my expectations or what do you think? Do not adjust your expectations. <laughs> you <Yes>. are <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you are absolutely spot on. And it did happen, of course, through COVID. We know during COVID, there is a, um, Uh, There is almost a PTSD-like syndrome that most managers and most owners went through during that time period. PTSD is is being in a situation and not knowing what's going to happen 
with your livelihood within the next moment. Of course, during wartime, it's a lot more real. But during COVID, managers, owners, people that have invested lots of time, lots of finances into their business didn't know what was going to happen. And they had to adjust so much. So many families that they built within their four walls were had to be broken down due to having to let people go. We were known, the hospitality industry was known as a family that had each other's backs no matter what. You knew you could drop your personal baggage off at the front door, go work with your team, and they were going to be there with you. During this time, the ultimate thing that they never thought that could happen did They got let go, they got cut, and there were ties to families, feeling like a family that happened. With the manager, they also had to run slimmer, go down to the basics, step three rolls down, and try to make things work. When the end of COVID-ish started coming about, and then we started restaffing, we still had this fear. We still had this thing going on of, I don't want to go back to what it was. And so we shaved off some of the systems, some of the processes, some of the training that made us successful in making our business run well and giving the ultimate service. And, and, but I'm not saying that that gives an excuse. I mean, Every it does single... though. Now I feel guilty for even saying <laughs> no, what I said. No, 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 no. It, it, it doesn't give the excuse because right now, as we speak, there are several restaurateurs that have been building back up that service standard, that training, that in-depth knowledge, the shoulder to, to shoulder uh, working to make sure that people are getting the right information to come on board teams and be effective at customer service. And this is where we as a industry have to understand that we've been subpar for way too long. And there are several sharp restaurateurs out there right now and hotel owners that have been building brands that far exceed pre-COVID levels when it comes down to service. So, and then lastly, last point is the pricing thing. Just like we talked about with pricing, we of course had to increase prices, whether it be it on plane tickets, on the hotel stays, on travel, and of course on restaurant food. But at some point, we can't let the price out uh, outpace the service. The service and the price has to be equal. We can't each quarter keep increasing, but not increase our level of execution for the customer. That is such an excellent point. And I think that's definitely part of the friction that I'm describing is like, this isn't worth it, man. I can't get yelled at at my house. (laughs) I don't need this. (laughs) It's true. It is so true. I'm sure whether it is online, on YouTube, on TikTok, on Facebook, it doesn't matter any of those social media handles, the type of things that are being witnessed inside of a business. um, It's just, I just can't explain it. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. You, maybe it's a good time for this. You have pivoted your career to focus on speaking. Eric, mm-hmm. like, I'm out of here. And based <laughs> on all of the gigs that you've been announcing on LinkedIn, you're definitely having success. 
What suggestions would you make for someone who might be interested in doing the same? You know, it goes back to the group that I actually um, uh, dove into more, the speaker lab, uh, like knowing how to really present yourself. They talk about the SPEAK framework. The SPEAK framework is actually a acronym. S on SPEAK stands for to, well, first, for any listener wanting to get into doing more speaking. This is some pretty good steps for you to think through before you take that next step. So first thing is you have to select a problem to solve. Most people listen to a speaker because they are speaking about a topic that is an issue and that they want to have solved. So know how to select the problem that you solve. The next acronym is P for prepare, how to prepare your talk, knowing how to build your talk to touch the right items at the right time within a right time frame. The E in speak is to establish your expertise. This is where you need to niche down. There's a lot of new speakers that that say, I can talk to anyone about anything. <laughs> it's not true. You, you need to be an expert. If you truly want to public speak and maybe get paid for it, be an expert within that field. Know the ins and outs of it and niche down. The A, acquire paid gigs. That is the thing that people are the most uncomfortable with. It's knowing how to market yourself. Most speakers want to speak, but they don't want to feel like I'm a cheesy car salesman trying to sell myself. You, But you, if you want this to be, if you want to live in a house and you want to eat, you probably <laughs> want to get paid. Mm -hmm. So knowing, knowing how to market yourself to the right people in order to get gigs. And then the last letter in speak is the K. That's knowing when to scale. Knowing when to scale means how many speaking things do I want to do? Do I want to do this full-time? Do I, I want to do it part-time? Do I want to keep my day job and then just do this because it brings me joy? Or do I want to take it further? Do I want to do podcasts? Do I want to do online courses? Do I want to... So you can find different ways of how to scale yourself, scale your business. And that's what that's that's how I got to the point to where I'm at now is by understanding those five concepts and making sure I think through that. Gotcha. We have reached the fortune telling portion of the show. So now you've got to predict the future and then I'm going to tell you in a year from now if you got it right. <laughs> what is a prediction that you have about the future of eating out? Uh, future of eating out. I think that it's going to be a lot more contactless payment, but in a different way. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot more subscription-based eating out Ooh, within restaurants. That's interesting. And, and what I mean by that, you know, you, we have these large food vendors, whether it be at a PFG or a Sigma or Cisco, and you have your main products coming from this distribution center. What if that distribution center created a program that the average customer 
can sign up for and they can pay a certain fee and choose to eat at certain restaurants with a choice of seven to 10 items per restaurant. So people would, you know, pay this fee every single month and whether it's two times per year or two times a month for this level or four times per month for this level, you're, you're able to go in these 10 to 12 mom and pop restaurants, scan this code, choose these items. You don't have to pay. You eat and then you walk back out. I think that that may be something that may be on the horizon. That is super interesting. I hope you're an investor or... If that's not already happening, I hope you uh, rush off to the patent office. And you know, I actually might have together. to do that because the more that I think about it, I'm like, it can be done. That's you a know? good idea. I really like that. Okay. If you could wave a magic wand and create a new product or service for the hospitality industry, what would it be? Maybe you just created it in your prediction. <laughs> Maybe I just did. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I think for the hospitality industry, the entire hospitality industry, if I could wave my wand, I would create and have coaching for six months for every single hospitality manager that it is built into their onboarding that they get one-on-one coaching for wow. six months. That would be huge. That would change literally everything. everything. Yeah. Everything. I totally agree. What's next for you? And what's next for your speaking company? Well, what's what's next for me is giving back. And what I mean by that, um, I actually have a partnership with Giving Kitchen. Giving Kitchen is a nonprofit group based out of Atlanta. And the Giving Kitchen helps food service workers in need. And I help food service workers transform into hospitality leaders. And I'm, and I want to give back by giving $30,000 to Giving Kitchen in 30 days. That's a thousand dollars for every day that the hospitality industry has given me. And we can do that by, by putting this book into the hands of 10,000 food service workers. My goal is to put the book into 10,000 food service workers and give Giving Kitchen $30,000 so they can help support the people that have helped and support us for so many years. There's lots of them that don't have insurance, that whenever they get sick, they don't get paid. It's not a job to where they get paid a salary. And Giving Kitchen finds ways to step in and help food service workers. And this goes from bars, to cafes, to cafeterias, anyone in the food service industry, they will help. And I find that to be amazing. So that's why I want to make sure that every book sold from March 18th to April 18th, that's going to go towards giving Giving Kitchen $30,000, even with pre-orders. Wow, that's amazing. And we will link in the show notes to where people can either pre-order or buy the book depending on when they're listening. Okay, folks, before we tell Jason goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Jason, what is a story you would only tell on the loading dock? Okay, this one, I'm going to have to go back to the Hilltop House. 
at the Hilltop House as a sous chef, um, I invested in myself the sharpest chef coats. And I bought myself a set of Wusthof knives. Ooh. Now, Wusthof knives for a set of four set me back $400. But these things were amazing. So it's one day I'm in the kitchen. It's a busy night. And I'm like, okay, I'm showing off. It's my brand new knives. I'm taking my honing steel and doing the trick. <laughs> so I'm prepping calamari. Now, Hilltop House, of course, has some attractive servers. Not as beautiful as my wife, but they have some attractive servers. So I'm cutting the calamari. I'm showing off. I'm talking to the servers. And then I look up while cutting the calamari. No. Two tips of my finger i'm like oh oh my god clean cut the station that i was working at was actually right by the hand sink so i put down i put down the knife and i'm like oh snap i need to fix this so i run to the sink i tell my chef i'm like chef row i just cut the two tips of my finger off he walks over cool and calm with a ramekin of sugar and he says shove your finger in this i'm like that's going to burn, Chef Bro. He's like, no, trust me. Shove your finger in this. I'm like, okay. So I take my two fingers, I pull it out the water, shove it in the sugar, no burn. Did you know, did you know back in the day, whenever chefs got cut, they would use sugar? Uh, Have you ever heard whenever you were younger? Whenever you're like, oh, mommy, I got a boo-boo. And then mommy says, oh, you have a boo-boo? Come here. Let me see. Let me put some sugar on it. Mm. Uh-huh. Actually, Stop sugar it. is a natural glue. And it actually cleans the cut. Oh. So after I shove my finger in the sugar, I hold it there like two minutes, take it back out, put it back under the running water. Keep doing that process for about eight minutes. I kid you not. At about minute 10, it stopped the bleeding. It was done because of the sugar. Of course, I then put on two Band-Aids, a glove, sanitized the station, all that good stuff. But lesson learned, don't look at the service <laughs> while cutting calamari. Jay, <laughs> I am going to thank you for being here. Although I don't know if I needed that shock to my system. <laughs> today i know that our listeners uh just drove off the side of the road from hearing that story also got some great tips and i really appreciate you riding up to the top floor susan i love the view up here you can invite me back at any time i would love it but even if not you are amazing keep doing what you do and you listeners enjoy that ride to the top floor okay Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 129. Jonathan Albano is our editor, producer, and all-around genius. He even wrote and performed our theme song with vocals by Cameron Albano. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And your rating or review will go a long way in helping us give you more of what you like. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. 
have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.